It's an aesthetic, not of the object, but of this kind of recognizing all the interesting places this symbol has gone. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Well, amazingly enough, art shows are a thing again, at least in New York, at least for now, and at least in the socially distanced way that we've come to see as normal. But it's really great news for the art-parched museum-going crowd, and it's even better news that some of the shows on view are really, really good. Without question, one of the buzziest shows of the season is the Brooklyn Museum's sweeping survey of the street artist and late capitalism prodigy known as Cause, one of the most popular artists in the world. So is his show really, really good? And what's the deal with Cause anyway? Well, why don't we ask Artnet News chief art critic Ben Davis, who visited the exhibition and wrote a review with the arresting title of, quote, why Cause's global success may well be a symptom of a depressed culture adrift in nostalgia and retail therapy. So what did he really think? I'm very happy to have him on the show today to find out. Thanks very much for coming back on The Art Angle, Ben. Great. It's wonderful to be here. I, I think this is actually a really interesting one to dive into. So, okay, let's dive in. Who is this guy? So Cause is the artist's name of Brian Donnelly, who is a graffiti artist turned street artist turned now toy maker, sculptor, painter, brand collaborator, fashion collaborator. So he wears many, many, many hats. This show focuses on his art or art-like things, although it contains evidence of his sneaker collaborations, his furniture collaborations, and a host of other stuff. But it starts with his earliest graffiti and street artworks and ends with videos showing his most recent exploits, which include creating an enormous inflatable version of one of his popular characters that he's known for, the companion that he floated in Hong Kong Harbor, and footage of him sending one of his toy-like art figurines into, basically, into outer space. The show starts with him tagging billboards and ends with him literally orbiting the Earth. What is his origin story? How did this mild-mannered Brian Donnelly become this global phenomenon known as cause? Well, I have to say one of the interesting things to me about cause and about the cause phenomenon and the kind of larger cultural vibes that he rides is that as origin stories go, he has an interesting origin story, but it's not a very dramatic origin story. You know, there is a certain investment in artists as interesting people, you know, who have like dramatic life stories, live passionately, take huge, weird risks. Cause is not one of those people. Like, he really represents a new archetype of the artist. And if you listen to him interviewed, he's very soft-spoken, mild-mannered, and sort of the opposite of a dramatic character. You know, he starts out middle-class white kid from Jersey who decides to get into graffiti, goes to school for illustration, in the School of Visual Arts in New York City. During that time period, through graffiti circles, he meets Barry McGee, who's a very famous um, San Francisco street artist, who gives him the key 
to unlock the advertising boxes on the side of bus shelters here in New York. And he starts just on a lark, taking out the advertisements in the boxes, adding graphics to them and inserting it back in. There he develops his signature character, which is this Mickey Mouse inspired thing called um, The Companion. Heads to Japan where he gets involved in streetwear circles and the very interesting vinyl art toys market, which sort of launches his career, and then is almost immediately successful. Can I just uh, just pause for a second and ask, what is the very interesting art toys movement? Is this toys that are made of artworks? Yeah, good question. And this may be what I find the most interesting about Cause, is this sort of um, scene of vinyl art toys um, that now you associate with companies like Giant Robot or Funko. There is a market in figurines, essentially vinyl figurines of various cartoon characters produced in limited editions that people trade. This sort of emerged in Japan and has become a very widespread cultural phenomenon, sort of has a big resonance with sneakerhead culture and streetwear. There are art-like objects that fit somewhere between action figures and toys and limited edition artworks, and people debate where they fall on that uh, spectrum endlessly. What Cause is most known for is sort of endless iterations in painting and sculpture and in figurines of this character Companion, who, like I said a second ago, looks like Mickey Mouse, but he has X'd out eyes and often appears kind of dejected or sad. And that is a signature image for Cause, but it's also kind of the general formula for art toys in general. That is, usually these things take a familiar cartoon image um, that's friendly or childlike and then makes it a little bit more adult in some kind of a way. One detail that you didn't mention about the companion figure that is, you know, maybe one of its more notable aspects is that it has these strange skull-like, you know, bone-like protuberances coming out of its head. What's the deal with that? Well, he first develops this graphic of the skull when he's defacing billboards. It's a really magnetic image. It has a lot of dark um, associations or art historical associations as a memento mori. When Cause talks about it, he says that he used it because it was a universally known image. Like you could show a skull anywhere in the world and people would get it. The images aren't about death, they're about recirculating images that people are familiar with and creating a sort of a universe out of familiar things. And what he becomes known for is kind of taking a couple of cultural images that are global in significance and putting them together. So how did Cause rise from being a toy manufacturer to having the show in the Brooklyn Museum? Well, I think there are a couple of steps in that. In Japan, he links up with some very um, hip streetwear brands that have a global following and becomes known in hip-hop circles. I think a lot of people first heard of him when he did the album cover for a Kanye West album, 808s and Heartbreak, in 2008. Kanye West, it should be said, had a great record of being an ambassador for things from the art world to the wider cultural world. He did an album cover with 
Takashi Murakami, a very important Japanese artist. He did an album cover with George Kondo, an American painter of some reputation. In this case, it actually sort of almost worked the other way, that Kaz was this figure from this street art, street wear, art toys world, and it was almost like he was introduced to art through <laughs> Kanye West. And then it has to be said that really Asia has been a big part of his story, that he started out in Japan and he really became a sensation in China. You know, I guess I speak for my myself, but I think I also speak for a bunch of other people that the cause phenomenon to me is a little bit perplexing, but it also reads to me as representing a set of aesthetic values and a way of thinking about art's place in culture that draws on a different frame of reference than I'm familiar with that's interestingly related to the fact that he first achieved really mega stardom in China. That I think that the Chinese luxury market has just grown very, very, very fast. And that had the effect that everything in China has grown so rapidly and so fast that the art market and the luxury market and art and commerce are entangled in a way that they are not here. You know, we have this longstanding tradition of thinking about this kind of dance between art and commerce, where they're, they're kind of flirting with each other and galleries don't show the prices. And the entire mystique of art is that it's kind of produced in this romantic way at a right angle from the market. And that is what makes it even more and extra valuable, that it occupies this separate lane from pop culture. And that, those things have been blurring together for a really long time, at least since the 60s. But really, cause represents a new level of that, and I think resonates in China in a certain kind of way, because there really is just much less of a barrier between the luxury object and the art object. The art object isn't expected to offer something personal beyond its sort of luxury status. Cause did a line of t-shirt collaborations with Uniqlo, the fast fashion retailer. And when those dropped in China, there were actual sort of soft riots, people um, flooding shopping malls, fighting each other, tearing apart mannequins. They're really striking images. And I guess they look kind of like those horror images you used to see from like Black Friday here in the United States when, you know, people line up at Walmart and battle each other for the deals. But this was over, very specifically over the cause merch. And I think it was really at that moment that people realized we were dealing with a new kind of phenomenon. In April 2019, where there was an auction in Hong Kong that was selling work from the collection of the sneaker magnate Nigo. One of his artworks was up for sale. It was a cause rendition that was based on the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band album cover that was, you know, reworked in his signature style with everybody looking like the companion with the skull and crossbones implanted into their head. And this was supposed to sell for a million dollars. It ended up selling for $14.8 million. There was just a total shockwave of awe and something bordering 
on um, horror and revulsion in the art establishment. And I actually remember that the very accomplished art market journalist, Annie Shaw, felt compelled at the point to write an opinion piece titled, Why Cause is Not a Great Artist. And name-checking the achievements of Duchamp and Warhol, she then said, Cause does not belong in this lineage. Trying to slam the door fully shut, she condemns the work for its, quote, sheer conceptual bankruptcy. So I think this kind of sets up something that's a key dynamic in the cause art story, which is that he is seen to be at war with the establishment. Well, I mean, I think that's a fairly one-sided war. I mean, I'm not sure Cause himself cares that much about that. The Cause album, I believe it's called, this painting that sold for such a big price. I mean, I don't think it's a good painting. It's in the Brooklyn Museum show. You can you can look at it. I mean, I don't think it rewards sustained attention. I don't think it's interesting either in design or in terms of the ideas behind it. But the price does reflect a certain degree of popularity, pop culture cachet, and so on. And I think it's interesting to figure out what's going on culturally, what he's a symptom of, you know, what's what's happening. There is a long-standing narrative in art history, going back to the 1960s, where there is a history of like the most popular artists in the game being also people who inhabit this kind of uncomfortable position where they are also reviled by the art establishment or who reach out to subject matter that people find to be self-consciously banal or kind of beneath consideration. So most famously, this is the case of Andy Warhol, who is kind of the archetypal contemporary artist and, of course, painted popular things, you know, dallied with popular culture and appeared on The Love Boat, a TV show in a cameo and became a kind of a celebrity. And in the 1980s, uh, this is very true of Jeff Koons, who's collaborated with all kinds of musicians and makes artwork that is very specifically about turning off your brain and not being critical of the pop cultural energy that you're receiving from the world around you. And cause is very much in that lineage. Now, what I think is interesting or development or marks this as a new chapter in the story is that both Warhol and Coons, when they appeared on the scene in the art world, they came alongside a very self-conscious narrative that what they were doing was socially meaningful as a criticism of the exclusiveness of the art world. As a matter of fact, people don't remember this, but when Warhol arrived, there were critics, not an insignificant number of them, and serious people who called what he did communism, as in art that embraced the common, and kind of thought of it as a self-consciously like Marxist gesture. That's a serious way people packaged Warhol at a certain point, was that like he is creating artwork that is outside the snooty vocabulary of art world 
elitism and talks to ordinary people and so on. Jeff Koons, when he arrived in the 1980s, people called it simulationism. And it was a very, very similar idea in a way that it was all about how by highlighting that the artworks were commodities and this was somehow breaking down the mythology that art was separate from commerce in this kind of critical way that people talked about philosophically. Cause is similar and you'll hear some of that rhetoric that he's like making art for the people, but really any pretense that this is a critical gesture, that there's any critical social critique has been broken down. And I think that's because our ruling class, if you will, has changed its ideology as well. Just to very quickly dilate on this thing, I think one of the most interesting and potentially important things in the whole cause dynamic is that, you know, that people call him a street artist, even though he hasn't made graffiti work or anything that's actually literally on the street for a long, long time. But I think that it's symptomatic of the way that street artist has gone from meaning graffiti artist, somebody who uses the street as a canvas, to somebody who's like more of the street, more like a vernacular artist. Being able to um, bring in the iconography of The Simpsons, of all of these uh, incredibly popular, universally understood signifiers of a shared kind of childhood culture just means that he has such a bigger footprint that doesn't have the same, you know, highfalutin academic quality standard. You know, people use the terms graffiti artist and street artist interchangeably, but in my mind, they're different things. And cause is both, but in different periods. So his very earliest um, work, I would call graffiti art, big bubble letters of his name, cause. He chose that name because he thought the letters looked good as a tag. And that's his earliest period. But street art is actually a little different tradition that emerges in parallel with the classic Bronx style of graffiti in the 1980s. And the street art tradition more looks to people like Jean-Michel Basquiat and Keith Haring, who weren't based in the Bronx, weren't working on streetcars in general. The early graffiti was really about like urban decay. There was all this like blank, barren space and laying claim to it and making a statement that you were visible, that here's your name, you claim this space, in a period of general urban abandonment. Then there was always this other tradition, the Basquiat's and the Herrings, and they were working downtown and more oriented on Soho where the art scene was. And their artwork was always more graphic. You know, it wasn't just about their name. It was about these kind of arty gestures, like poetic fragments or Herring's exuberant outlines. The very first image in the show at the Brooklyn Museum is of a Keith Haring. It's an homage to Keith Haring by Cause, where he takes a poster for a Keith Haring show and he adds his own graphic to it. So he's coming out of graffiti, but oriented towards street art. And the street art idea takes off in a different moment. It has a certain kind of different texture. And it's really later when Cause is coming up in the late 90s, and it's not the moment of urban abandonment. It's the moment of the disnification of Times Square, when urban space is becoming very taken over by advertising. It's really the moment of gentrification. And the street artists, you know, your Shepherd Fairies, your Banksies, they are playing in a much more graphic way that's in dialogue with the kind of 
commercialization of space and often very ironically about your mind being um, eaten up by the advertising is taking over space. And when cause moves from tagging into what you call subvertisements, that is like subverting advertisements, he's really moving into a new kind of space. But there are people who have ascribed critical intention to what he did to advertising when he puts like a skull face into a fashion advertisement or something. But it doesn't, it must be said, read very critically. It reads as like adding a logo to a space that's already full of logos to piggyback off of their popularity. And he's never talked about it like that. He is not interested in criticism of this. He's interested in sort of surfing the wave of the transformations in the way images circulate in the uh, post-90s world. So I know you have a theory about what cause means about our culture writ large. And before we get that, I just want to make two kind of maybe ill-considered arguments in favor of his great artistic accomplishment. So first up, cause is profound. He tackles subjects of the human condition. His artworks are these childhood kind of avatars that kind of, you know, emerge from different cartoons that we know and love from our childhood, only they are crossed with this skull motif. So they have the alpha of our youth, they have the omega of our impending death. And in the meantime, they're caught in this kind of liminal um, space where the, all they do is grieve and emote there's this very classic kind of in causes idiom sculpture of the companion that's holding his BFF in a posture that anybody would know from the Pieta or they'd also know from like any war movie where somebody holds their friend and goes, no, you know, it's like this classic banality. So these are topics that everybody can relate to fundamental human things. Is this not the work of a great artist? There's death and there's death, you know? Um, I am happy if that is what someone gets out of it. If it helps them cope with their mortality or their sense of time passing. I don't really view my job as telling people who like things that they shouldn't. I think it's more interesting to figure out, you know, why they like them. And I think our job is to have a conversation with each other about what is valuable. Let me just make clear, I, do, I don't like cause. I'm just trying to see if there are arguments that can be made. <laughs> we, we are in the minority in not liking cause. I mean, the, the, he's a hugely popular artist. And I think people pick up on certain energies in him that I'm probably not capable of picking up on. I mean, are you familiar with the term poptimism, Andrew? No, but um, it sounds sounds great. <laughs> it's a term for music criticism, kind of about what happened to music criticism in the last 10 years. And if you think back 10 years, there was still like a pretty robust indie music culture, you know? The hipster was the archetypal, cool, cultural consumer, you know, someone who liked obscure things, you know, uh, that was really invested in the arcana pop culture and drew status from the obscurity of their tastes. 
but we're not in that moment anymore. We're in a poptimistic moment. And that means that the dominant music criticism, the dominant taste is all around the most popular pop music. And what people enjoy and look for and find is their meaning in what is popular and not what is obscure. And that's a different kind of distinction. And to me, cause is a very good analog for that in visual culture, that people like it because it's liked by other people. I just don't think that people in general who like it look at it, even though it has this kind of tongue-in-cheek uh, edginess. It's, I don't really think that any more people are thinking about death when they look at it anymore than they think think about death when they, you know, watch the Tom and Jerry movie um, and see the cat and the mouse hit each other over the head with very heavy objects. What people are participating in is a language of symbols that provides people a kind of, of way to recognize each other as marking out a certain kind of contemporary cool consumer space that's defined by these global logos and brands rather than obscure cultural tastes. Okay, so I'll just run through my second kind of plea for cause, which is, so he comes out of graffiti, which is this very ancient form of advertising. He's a master of advertising. He's also a master of merchandising. His products are all of incredibly high quality from the toys to the giant 30-foot sculptures or 110 foot inflatables that he's sent around the world. He's incredibly great at packaging. And he's like a Renaissance man in the style of a Walt Disney or a Steve Jobs, who's able to make a flawless branded kind of universe. And I wonder, is it necessary that the art part has to be in the work itself? Or can the art part be the infrastructure and the virtuosity of the way that it operates in the world. You know, I think that's what the people who like it sort of get out of it. I mean, he's not really these days a street artist at all, but I think one of the things it inherits from street art is this preoccupation with placement. I mean, that street art is the same thing over and over again. I mean, a big part of what people appreciate is just how a symbol, a name, repeats in different places and in ever more improbable and interesting locations. So, yeah, I think that's part of what people get is like, oh, here's this guy who created this symbolic universe and look at all the great places he's gotten it. You know, it's been on shoes. It's It's been blown up into a giant balloon and, and flown down the streets of New York as part of the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade alongside a lot of the characters he draws on. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's that aspect to it that it's an aesthetic, not of the object, but of this kind of recognizing all the interesting places this symbol has gone. What is your take? What does cause mean to you as far as you reflect something about the larger culture? You know, the artwork of Cause is sort of self-consciously inane, as we've been talking about. Like, it's just cartoon characters doing the same thing over and over again and slightly tweaked. And at the same time, to the extent that they're tweaked, it's in this kind of depressive direction. 
the colors are leached out, the eyes are always crossed out, and they're often in these kind of um, poses of inertia, you know, slumped or collapsed or imitating poses of grief or despair. So what's going on there? I guess I just think that the most popular art, the ground tone of our time, is a little bit depressed. You know, if they were just cartoon characters happily going about their time, they wouldn't just wouldn't feel very contemporary, and therefore they wouldn't appeal to adult people. You know, if you listen to the radio, you will find that an awful lot of popular music um, has this kind of echoey, washed-out, depressive kind of quality. Cause got his start doing the cover for Kanye West's 808s and Heartbreaks, which is this auto-tuned, kind of sad, depressive album. And in some ways, I think that was a perceptive choice, although I didn't think of it at the time. And if you, you know, pay attention to pop culture in general, like, you know, there's like the world's always ending. It's sadder to think that it doesn't even register as sadness anymore. <laughs> that gives another way to look at the both the kind of nostalgiac cartoon character quality of it and the commercialism of it. Because I think, you know, when people are depressed, they retreat to their their comforts, you know, which is nostalgic culture. In this case, sort of Gen X, 90s nostalgia, the Smurfs and, and the Simpsons and, and so on. When you go looking for comfort television, you're not necessarily looking for challenging high art. You know, that's going to like make you work to get a message or, you know, challenge your expectations like you want something that goes down real easy. So that's in there, you know, in the cause phenomenon that at a higher level, the very things that people find stupid about it, as in the fine art world, finds kind of threateningly acritical about it are, I think, a certain mass audience kind of medicating itself culture in general, retreating to comfort culture. And so that's, to me, what I see in cause, is a mix of those two things. You know, on the one hand, this kind of loose, low-level depression, and the other hand, in dialogue with that, this kind of, like, comforting, self-conscious aesthetic of familiarity. Those are symptoms of a certain thing about culture right now. I don't know if it's a good thing, but it's a real thing. But now he seems almost quaint in comparison to this uh, even more terrifyingly nihilistic phenomenon of NFTs that has cropped up and is kind of seeming to defy different orders of physics. Does thinking about cause help us understand NFTs or does thinking about causes audience help us understand the audience for NFTs better? Well, yes and no. I mean, in my opinion, I think that they're actually kind of different audiences. The digital art audience, meme audience, and the cause, sort of streetwear, art toys audience are different subcultures. I think, to a certain extent, it does seem like, and this just shows you how explosive and, you know, rapid shifts in culture happen now. I think when the cause show opened in the Brooklyn Museum not that long ago, it seemed like to certain kinds of art critics, art world insiders, like it's just this total collapse of taste and value and 
this is junk culture's final triumph in the museum and you know what have we become and then just a few weeks later people were selling jpegs for millions of dollars you know tens of millions of dollars and i think as our colleague tim schneider put it he said you know i am sure that cause has never seemed so unthreatening and comfortingly like like the art that you know to to those same art world insiders. So it's actually kind of amazing that the NFT conversation, the conversation about selling digital art has almost completely displaced the conversation about cause and what he represents in such a short period of time. But in a way, I think that says more about the professional art audience and how it's processing these things and how there's really only room for one cause for alarm in in the critical mind at once. That's the no part. And then the yes part is I do think that the last 10 years, particularly the last five years, have been this kind of real meltdown in the structures of art and tastemaking. And I think though Cause and Beeple, the artist who sold an NFT for $69 million um, a couple weeks ago that you talked about in the previous episode, are, are different phenomena. They're different faces of the same melting together of different layers of culture and the way that people with lots of money are processing that and the way that the attention economy and the money economy are intertwining in new kinds of ways. I mean, a few years ago, Andrew, I wrote an essay um, that you headlined, um, uh, Why the Art World is over or whether it wasn't at an end. And what I meant by that, I was thinking about art and social media and how there's this critic named Lawrence Alloway who wrote an essay in 1972 called Network, the Art World Describes the System. And one of the points he makes in that essay that I really like is that an art world is not defined by the production of art because there are lots of places where art is made that there is nothing we'd call an art world. Like, art, an art world is defined by the conversation around art and the circulation of images of art, the circulation of media about art, and the circulation of art itself to different kind of institutions that put a spotlight on it and tell people to think about it and talk about it. You have an art world when you have taste-making functions that are focusing attention and creating conversation about the kinds of things that we call art. And I think one of the things that has happened, particularly since social media has kind of like disintegrated most of the functions of media, is that the institutions of art, including museums and art journalism, has lost the ability to center the conversation or the conversation become much more porous. Cultural conversation moves around and jumps to new kinds of things very, very fast and in new kinds of ways. And popular attention accumulates around things unexpectedly and in new kinds of ways. And the abilities of an art world to control people's attention essentially have broken down. And I think people and cause offer different symptoms of that breakdown. The parochial art world used to be so small and that people would know each other by their names and that's how it functioned, but now it's just atomized. And so it's kind of amazing that we haven't seen anything that is weirder. It's still normal and recognizable. And I wonder how long that's gonna hold. 
one of the things that's happened is the loss of a distinction at ever greater levels of what's popular and what's good. Making any kind of meaningful distinction in between those things is harder and harder. And part of that is because, you know, it's just a dialectical thing, if you want to use a bit of jargon, that the internet has made much, 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 much more culture available simultaneously at all times. Every meme, every landscape, pictures of people, pornography, luxury objects, sports highlights, it's all in one space. And when everything's in one space, that's very difficult to navigate. So it, that diversification inherently leads to a re-centralization. The metrics for what's governing or guiding attention just have to be much more centralized because the conversation is otherwise so much more unwieldy. And that's what people are dealing with right now, that like the flip side of this massive opening of culture is this kind of closure of culture where culture centralizes in new ways around sometimes things you wouldn't expect. So what some people perceive as an opening, I guess what I'm saying, that like, oh, new kinds of people can participate, new kinds of cultures get their due, which is all true, has a price, which is that, yeah, but you're wrestling for that space with celebrities and ads and corporations, and that is very unsettling, the effects that it has on culture. So if you read Cause's life story, it's very late in his career that there's any interest from the formal art world, you know, so there's a credible case that he like really like traces a new path and is kind of comes up in a new kind of way and, you know, circumvents the traditional gatekeepers of culture. But is that him, you know, sticking it to the man? Well, on the flip side, his career path is littered with brands, you know, <laughs> like it's just one branded collaboration after another. You can perceive it as being somehow anti-elitist in the sense that it goes around some traditional ideas of culture. But in a way, it's a new kind of status culture, is a new kind of elitism. And for my money, my guess is that although people perceive it as a new kind of democratic opening or something, that, you know, here's this Here's this kind of culture that the, the critics don't want you to see, you know, um, and now now it's at the Brooklyn Museum. My guess is, is just that there's actually much less room for you to be an artist like Cause <laughs> than there is for you to be a more traditional artist. You know, just that career path is inherently a viral fame and celebrity collaborations is just inherently more rare. Well... Thanks very much for coming on the show, Ben. I think, you know, love him or hate him, it's clear that he is cause for some interesting conversation. So uh, that's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening and see you next week.